tonight I'm going to kind of uh, trespass on Peanuts territory just for about two minutes. I can't stay longer than that because that's not my zone. So, But tonight I want to talk about uh, daddy issues. Uh, could be mommy issues. Could be caregiver issues. Could be grandma, whoever it is that raised you or whoever it is that damaged you or contributed to your brokenness, daddy issues. And for a subtopic, I want to talk about transitioning from forsaken to beloved. Transitioning from forsaken to beloved. For those that took Peanut's uh, class, the um, relational mask one, I'm going to deal with the first core belief. So much of how we interact with God is shaped by our childhoods and how we were raised by our parents. Our parents' attitudes and actions toward us often shaped a divine concept in our minds. Our initial preconceived notions of God are shaped and molded through the parental relationship. We learn to know who God is or is supposed to be through our parents. Uh, whether it's good or bad. In her class, the first core belief from your parents is that God cannot be trusted. Many of us learn this belief during our first 15 years. Our parents and caregivers model for us what God looks like. And the scripture supports this. Let's get Numbers 23. Verse number 18. I'm reading from the Living Bible Translation. Says God is not a man that he should lie. He doesn't change his mind like humans do. Has he ever promised without doing what he said? And there's a reason that God is giving us a contrast between humans and himself. It's because he knows that our preconceived notions of him have been formed and shaped by humans around us, whether it be our caregivers, even later in life and your relationships. Because relationships are such a spiritual thing, it kind of leaks over into your faith. They're very closely tied together. In fact, all throughout the Bible, the way God that interacts with man, he's a friend, he's a father, he's a husband. He's all of these things to us. He's a, he's a savior. Uh, he's a judge. All of these relationships have to be worked out in our minds uh, in such a way that we really don't treat God like man. So he tells us here, I'm not like man. Man will fail you. Man will let you down. Uh, man can even be good to you, but I'll be better to you. So he draws this contrast here. So we must reach a point in our lives where we separate God from our parents or our caregivers. We must, as the scripture says, let God be true and let every man be a liar. And the key word of that scripture is to let, because God is true anyway. But the question is, is he truth for you? Or have you been living a lie your entire life? Are you currently at a point in your life where you really don't want to see things for what they really are, so you maybe nicknamed them, you called them something else? All right, so I got a little contrast here of my own. We have a before and after picture of Jesus. 
Let's get Mark 14 and 33. Here's the before picture of Jesus. He took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be filled with horror and deepest distress. And he said to them, my soul is crushed by sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might never come. Father, Father, or the King James says, Abba, Father. He said, everything is possible for you. Take away this cup from me, yet I want your will, not mine. So here we see that in his most distressed moment, he prays to God, but he, he entreats him like a father. All right, now let's get the after picture. Let's get chapter 15, verse 33. It says, about noon, darkness fell across the entire land, lasting until three o'clock that afternoon. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is interpreted, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? This is the only one of Jesus' prayer where he did not address God as Father. Every prayer that he prayed while he was on earth, he always prayed saying Father or Abba, Father. This is the only recorded prayer where now he treats his Father as a judge. It was in his vulnerable state of forsakenness that God goes from Father to God okay Exodus 10 and 22 lets us know that there was a three-day darkness placed on Egypt before the last plague of the firstborn's death now you got to kind of know the history of Israel here on the cross there's three hours of darkness the Bible says of Jesus he is the only begotten of the father he is the only one after Adam that we know is called the son of God in Egypt, the very last plague that God brought upon the Egyptians was going to be the firstborn of every household of the Egyptians. But before that happened, there was three days of darkness. He is letting them know here that in this death, you're getting ready to escape something. Before escape comes the darkest hour. So he says, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken means to leave behind in some place, to desert, to renounce, or to turn away from entirely. It means to withdraw protection from, or to withdraw support, or help. I don't know about y'all, but I don't want to be helpless. There were some times in my childhood when my parents split, and uh, this gun might be a little personal tonight. I was about seven years old, and my two older brothers went and lived with my father. I stayed with my mother, but I had weekends with my father. And so he was supposed to pick me up on Fridays after school. So I'd come home from school very excited. I'd pack my bags and, you know, and uh, make sure all my chores were done. My room was clean. The dishes were washed and everything because I'm about to go spend a weekend with Pops. Now, Pops is moving on now to another family now. He's building his own little family now. So there would be many weekends where I'd sit and 
four o'clock roll by, five o'clock roll by, six o'clock roll by, and uh, mom would come into the uh, living room because I'd sit on the couch looking out the window. She said, "Well, maybe you should just put your pajamas on." You know, I said, "No, he's coming. He's coming. He's you know he said he was gonna be here, and no call, no show." And so I was in. Uh, performing arts, I had, if it wasn't a piano recital, it was a drama I was acting in, or a stage play or something, or uh, a dance show, or I was on the production team of something, I was always into something, and we let them know months in advance, you know, all right, this is the date of the show, and all right, I'm going to be there, and there would be no show, and so this, this goes on my entire life from seven years old until I really had to start seeing things for what they were. You know, we, we grow up and we nickname it and we shove it off and oh, he's busy and I understand and that and da 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 da. But deep down inside, you're hurting. And so the culmination of it was uh, my, my high school graduation. Our school didn't have it in our auditorium. They actually rented a place. And so they were uh, a certain number of tickets you can have. So I was able to get three tickets. All right, so I was going to take my mom, my aunt who helped me raise me, and my father. And so graduation's getting ready to start. I'm there with my aunt. I'm there with my mother. And uh, everybody's there, got the cap and gown on. And I'm looking around, and no show. You got to realize that when somebody starts a pattern like that, that it's going to keep going unless they really change. And I found out that most folk do not change after a certain age. After they've been there so long, they're just not going to change. So the change is going to have to take place in you. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck in that same cycle. And then you'll, you'll start to injure yourself. Now, the danger of that is that you'll start to make decisions in life once you enter into adolescence and young adulthood that reflect that. People always say that, you know, uh, young women will grow up to marry their father. Young men will grow up to, to marry their mother. Sometimes they do it subconsciously and they don't know it, but those qualities stand out to them because they've seen it for so long. And sometimes they're, they're bad qualities that you actually jump into. And then before you know it, you, you turn around and say, man, you just like my mother. You just like my father. Or you start to draw friends like that. So there has to be a separation point. You got to get to a point to where you say enough. And after we were married a while, I would call. I call my dad every now and again, sometimes, most of the time around his birthday. Let's go ahead and do lunch. You know, I know your birthday's coming up. I want to take you out. And we'll set up a, a date or whatever. And uh, he'll, he'll call maybe the day of and say, ah, well, something came up. And so my wife asked me one time sitting in the bathroom, she said, why do you keep doing this to yourself? And I said, well, I've gotten to a point now to where I don't expect it from him. I'm surprised if he keeps the appointment. But in my mind, I already know. See, before, I had that hope. But I had given up that hope. And I was fine with the relationship. And I was able to deal with him from that standpoint. A little personal. All right, so from these before and afters, we see him in his most vulnerable state, praying to God, saying, Abba, Father. And then we see him at, at uh, death's door saying, my God, my God, 
because God had just now become his judge. So Jesus went from beloved to forsaken so that we could be transitioned from forsaken to beloved. He had to reverse the curse. All right. Now let's look at us before and after Ephesians 2 and 12. Because from that broken state, from that brokenness, that vulnerability that I had with my own father, once God started dealing with me, I would hardly ever ask God for anything because I knew it ain't going to happen. Where did I get that from? I didn't get that from the Bible. That was what was implanted into my spirit. And that relationship because it is ordained by God for a father to raise his son, that relationship is designed for the father or the mother or the caregiver to raise that child uh, in such a way, not to, to tell them what to do and what to believe, but to lead and guide their, their thought process to God. They lead them to the path of God and let them know God for themselves. But when that doesn't take place or when that whole system is perverted, then now I don't know how to interact with my own God, the, the one who created me. I don't know how to deal with him. I don't know when his voice speaks to me. I don't, I don't know what his will is for me. I'm walking around lost, and I'm claiming to have the Holy Ghost, but I don't know which direction I should go in. I don't believe that that's the direction God wants us to be in. I think that if we're his children, then he should talk to us like, like we're his children. We should be able to talk to him as Moses did face to face like a man talks to his friend. All right. So our, our before picture in Ephesians 2 and 12, it says, remember that in the days you were living utterly apart from your Christ. You were enemies of God's children and he had promised you no help. You were lost without God and without hope. So the state that we're born into is that we are abandoned or forsaken by God. When Jesus was born, he said he told him when he was baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But when we're born, we're born on the flip side of being forsaken because we're born uh, in sin and shaping in iniquity. And now let's look at our after process. Romans 8 and 15. I've been playing for the past month or so a song by Kirk Carr. It uh, says spiritual makeover. And the height of the song says, I'm so glad that I don't look like what I've been through. I'm so glad that I don't look like what I've been through because he's given me a spiritual makeover. Romans 8 and 15 says, and so we should not be like cringing, fearful slaves, but we should behave like God's very own children adopted into the bosom of his family and calling to him, Father, Father. For his Holy Spirit speaks to us deep in our hearts and tells us that we really are God's children. See, now it's got to get to the point now to where I, I can't I can't just go on. I'm God's child because I heard myself speak in tongues. It's got to get deeper than that now. It's got to get to a place now to where there's really relationship. 
And, and there's not just a, a, a connection of a seed that was planted once upon a time. Many of us have been walking around saying, oh, I've been born again. But there's been no relationship cultivated since that point. I think that makes God sad. And a lot of times, like, like tonight we're talking about daddy or mommy issues or whatever the caregiver was. It's not that you do it on purpose that you interact with God that way, that you have no faith, that you have no trust. It, it, it's in you that way, and he's got to bring it to your attention. And it's going to take a long, dark period and a death before it gets better. It takes a death of the firstborn. The first you has to die. That broken you, that forsaken you, has to die. But we don't want to go through the darkness. Right now, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Lord, please, I don't want to go this route. Can't I just jump for joy? Can't I just leap for joy? Can I walk around the building seven times and let the walls of Jericho fall down? If it were just that simple. So he wants us to act like him and call to him like Jesus called to him. Because we're his children. And he says if we're his children, then we're heirs of God. Join heirs with Christ. Now an heir is someone who receives impartation from the father. And pure religion, the Bible says, is to minister to the fatherless. Now, in one retreat, I talked about the connotation of the word fatherless and widow. That pure religion, because we, we read uh, also the first chapter of Isaiah. If you didn't read it with us that time, go back and read it. But they had gotten to a place to where they were doing religious activity. Oh, they were doing it. They were like the Corinthians. They had the religious thing going. But the thing was, they weren't sticking up for what was right. They weren't defending people that were defenseless. They were allowing people to be walked on and criticized and, and talked about. You know, we, we sing them in songs, scandalize my name, talked about, mistreated. But, but they allowed that to go on in their midst. And nobody said anything about it. And he said, because you, you've done that, every time you pray, I won't even be hearing you. Because you got to address this issue because you have not dealt with the fatherless and the widow. Now, the fatherless, he tells us, which is pure religion, are those who have been disconnected from their inheritance. They've been disconnected from what God intended them to be. Because in the Bible, when you deal with fatherhood, you dealt with someone you would stay under their roof. That was your protection. That was your means of, of, and, and source of, of food, your livelihood. All of that was connected to your father. When your father died, you lost all of that. So it was up to the people to take you in and to care for you like a father would. The widow is one who was now half the person that they were because the Bible says that when two people come together in marriage, the two become what? One. So now if one dies, now you're half of the person. 
So we have broken people that we refuse to minister to. So we can't claim to have pure religion when we, when we refuse and just walk by people and tell them, God bless you, but we don't minister to their needs or, or try to show some type of compassion. Not that you have the answer, but there ought to be something in you that is connected to God to say, don't you see this hurting daughter of mine? Don't you see that my child is in pain? Pure religion. So now let's look at the history of the relationship of the son of God between him and his father. Psalm 2 and 7 says, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Now this quote is also quoted in Acts 13 and 33 in Hebrews 1 and 5. The thing here is that the son has said, I'm not going to wait for the father to declare who I am. But I'm going to repeat what the father is going to say. We have to constantly get in the word of God and find out what God says about you. All right. So he says, I will declare and decree what the Lord has said to me. Now, there, there's personal conversation. Matthew 3 and 16 says, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water and lo, the heavens were open unto him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This happened not only at his baptism, but also on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration which is found, I believe, in Matthew 17, if you want to read. Y'all know I, I got a lot of scriptures, so I'm going to just quote them to you. Y'all can read them later. John 15 and 9 says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Live within my love. When you obey me, you are living in my love, just as I obey my Father and live in his love. I have told you this, so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your cup of joy will overflow. Now, Peter brought out, and I believe it was the five ways to look at the love of God, that we would never deny the love that God had for Jesus. We would emphatically say he loved that baby, bouncing baby boy from the cradle to the cross. Everything that he did, he did for him. From Genesis to Revelation, he did, he had in his mind that his son was going to do this. It was like Abraham, which we have the type. To wait for something for 25 years, and then when it's finally there, and you're just now getting into in, enjoying life, and the boy is now 25 years old, he tells you that which you've waited for 25, 20 or 30 years, and, and you've now gotten to know for 25 years, now I want you to take that, and kill it. What would you do? We'd be like, that ain't God. God ain't no God. Ain't, God ain't gonna tell me kill my my kid now. But we wouldn't doubt the love that Abraham had for Isaac. So we don't doubt the love that God had for Jesus. So why do we doubt the love that He has for us? Now, before you say in your mind, somebody just said, I don't, I don't. I don't doubt God's love for me. Then the question is, when you call out to him, are you calling out to him as a father? 
or is God forsaken? Usually when you go into the season of, uh, of talking to God, how do you approach him? Do you approach him in fear? Oh, Lord, oh, what I did today. Oh, what I thought. Or do you sit down and talk to him like a father? Not like your father. See, I can't now talk to God the way I talk to my father. Because my father really wasn't interested in what I had to say. But now when, I, when I'm grown, I take that mentality to God. And I say, Lord, you, uh, I guess I, I'm going to ask for this. But, uh, you, you know, you, little old me, I'm worthless. I don't deserve this. You don't believe that you're his daughter. You're his son. Now we, now we got to come to the truth. Really assess that. So if we question this love, then our view of the Father's love for us will be tainted and corrupted. So throughout Christ's earthly ministry, we see him transition from his celebrated entry to his lonely exit. See, as he walked the earth, his fame grew. People liked him. He was popular. But the more closely he drew to the Father for this grand exit, the more people left him. See, this is why we've got, we've got to learn how to transition in life. We've got to learn how to bring on some folk, shed some folks. And like the message of the week this week, you got to mourn those losses, but move on. Take it in. Take a moment and say, I thank you for that relationship or, or whatever, that job, that time that I had on that job to, to interact with this person and that person. But it's over now. <laughs> you try to hold on to folk that God's trying to take from you, you won't get very far. I told you, it gets dark. Three hours of darkness on the cross. Three days of darkness before they got out of Egypt. So you want to get out in the daylight. You want to be able to see everything clearly. You want everything just written on a tablet for you. A, B, C, D. This is what I want you to do. But, but you got to step out in the middle of the night. Allow the darkness to manifest. So out of all that he went through while on earth, he has the testimony that no matter who left him, he always had the communion with the Father. But on the cross, he was left alone, even deserted by the Father because of the sin which he willingly took on. So the agony that he felt in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, throughout all of his life, he, everybody left him. They only followed him for the fishes and the loaves. He knew this. Even the apostles, they wanted to fight about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Judas Iscariot, he was so concerned about the money. Lord, why you, we could have sold this for some profit. This woman got some good ointment putting on your feet. He was telling the Savior of the world, your feet are not worth the ointment. I'd rather cash in on that. So all of this takes place. He knows that the folk did, really didn't want him for who he was. But he always had the father. But now on the cross, 
even the father turns his back. But it's reversed for us. We're born into to the forsakenness of God. We're not friends of God when we came out the womb. We became his friend, so we think. Prayer is our communication to God. And communication is the strength of any relationship. Our communication with God is built on the premise of a father-child or a father uh, or parent-child relationship. He says, when you pray, the first thing I want you to do is acknowledge me as Father, our Father, which art in heaven. This gives us his position and his locale. In your prayer life, you have to know what the position of God is, and you have to know the locale of God. When you confuse this, now when you reproach God, and you, you, it's like you're going to the courthouse and you just got a speed ticket and you know the judge is going to drop the hammer on you. You're just praying that that officer don't show up to the court that day so you can get that ticket dismissed. So you're going in with the fear that there's a big gavel that's going to come down on your life. Is this how we come to God in our prayer life? See, we got to believe the scripture that says that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that, who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in him, there should be no condemnation. That means that, that if you messed up, the Bible says, confess it, move on. The blood covers it. There's no reason to live in seasons of agony in your life because you tripped. Sometimes I wonder whose side the people are on in the church because they want to just beat you up. We, you, you need to stay there for, the, for, for a little while longer. Know what you did. You did A, B, C, and D. When the father said, oh, covered. And so we, we, we walk in life with all of these guilt trips going on in our minds, which is nothing but an illusion. So you're approaching God as this big, mean judge when he wants to be your father. Let's get John 3.18. Now we love John 3.16. Well, let's start at 16 since we like that one so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God doesn't condemn you. God convicts you. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation has so much attached to it. The forsakenness, the brokenness, the, the hopelessness comes with condemnation. But with conviction, there is the possibility of changing. There is hope marbled in with conviction. When you approach God, is he the condemner? When you approach God, is he the judge? Is he that consuming fire that we 
were raised in the Pentecostal holiness churches. It's hellfire. And yes, hell exists, but where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. But we don't live our lives like that. So, are we in this dilemma? After his declaration of anguish on the cross, the Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, it says that Jesus breathed his last breath. It is time for the forsaken me to die so that the beloved me can begin. Now, there, I'm going to do this probably at the next retreat, but there are seven sayings that Jesus uttered on the cross. This was the fourth one when he said, why, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was number four. The fifth one was, I thirst. The sixth one was, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the seventh one was, it is finished. What we're seeing here is a process that the Savior had to go through in order for redemption to be brought about. But here, there's the forsakenness. And after the forsakenness, this is why we named these retreats this, there's a thirst for the forsaken. There, there's, there's so much wantonness to be made whole, but there's no knowledge of how to get there. Hopefully this is what will come of tonight, how to get there. Brian McKnight said, one last cry <laughs> before I leave it all behind. Some of us need to have a last cry while it's dark, while we're, while we're thirsting. And when Jesus said, I thirst, he, he had somebody come and give him vinegar mixed with gall. I said, if you're thirsty, just drink of this. He said, no, I got to go through this. So you, you can't take the easy way out of what you're in right now. You're thirsting because all, all of the, the being in you is being drained because of the position that you're in. Hung out there, forsaken. The darkest hour. But somebody sometimes can come and offer you something that, that's not from God. He had to wait on it. For the joy that was set before him, he endured all of this. Because it wasn't just going to be a little, a, a, a little drink on the cross. But he was going to have a full glass when he finished what he was doing. I want your joy to be full, but you only get it through knowing what the love is all about. So the process. What started out to be probably a beautiful day on, on, on this day that he was crucified. Turned into darkness and then to being forsaken, and then to death. It probably started out a beautiful day. Sun out, birds chirping, but because of what he had to go through, darkness came, then forsakenness came, then death. This is the process some of us have got to go through right now. Gosh, I don't like it, but I got to do it. This is the path that mankind takes. So upon the death of the forsakenness, access to God is granted. When Jesus cried out, his last cry, when he said it is finished and he gave up the ghost, 
the veil in the temple that separated God from man was rent from top to bottom. So when your forsaken man dies, that's going to give birth to the beloved man. Right then, he became our high priest forever. I'll talk about the high priest a little bit tomorrow. So no one needs to stand in the gap for you anymore. You have direct access to God. The thing that God did here for you is he gave you direct access to the source of life. He gave you direct access. There is now no other mediator. There's no Moses. There's no priesthood that stands between the people and God. Our job is to present and lead people to Christ. Once we lead them to Christ, let them walk with Christ. Don't you say, hey, here's Christ. Christ meet John. All right, now, John, you stay with me. I'm going to show you how to live. I just walked, I, I just led you away from the one that has all the answers. So we got to be careful. So we got to breathe now. Exhale. Let that, let that, that last breath go that you've been holding on to. So I got to keep this alive. Because if I allow this to go, what am I without it? Bishop Saunders preached a message called uh, Floating on Broken Pieces. And he preached about the storm of Eurocladon and how the ship was busted up. But, but Paul said, don't jump out of the ship, stay in the ship. Now, if they had jumped out the ship, they would have been out there in the water and the ship would have been driven to another place. They got nothing to hold on to. But at least when the ship did break up, it broke up into pieces that they could grab onto. So he said, if you got to hold on to your molestation, hold on to that until God gets you to dry ground. If you got to go on your faithlessness, whatever it is, your brokenness, that thing that could have brought you down to your knees, hold on to that until you get to dry land. Hold on to the broken piece. But here, Jesus says, okay, I'm going to let this go. 1 Peter 2 and 24 says, he personally carried the load of our sins in his own body when he died on the cross so that we can be finished with sin and live a good life from now on for his wounds i like the way the living bible translation puts this for his wounds have healed ours his wounds have healed our wounds we must allow his wounds let god be true let him so like an olive from which the oil is extracted by beating because olive oil, you don't, you don't just squeeze and, and destroy the olive, but they beat it to where the, the juice would just drip from it. That's how the blood of Jesus is able to heal our stripes or heal our hurts. So our desire and goal should be to have the type of relationship with the father that Jesus had. Number one, he had assurance 1 John 11 and 41, listen to how he prayed. So they took away the stone. He's raising Lazarus from the dead here. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. That's an interesting thing to pray, isn't it? I thank you that you hear me. Because in all honesty, why would you be praying to somebody that you don't think is hearing you? But this is our relationships. Well, you're talking, but 
the parents are not listening. I have to listen to my daughter. I have to sit down, take time, put something to the side, and listen. It, it could be what I, I could think it's silly, but it could be huge for her. And there, there have been times where I, you know, was too busy to sit and listen, but I, I noticed the way she walked away. Like, oh, he don't want to listen to me. So he says, I thank you that you hear me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. First Peter 3 and 12 says, for the Lord is watching his children, listening to their prayers, but the Lord's face is hard against those who do evil. So you got to believe that. I think that one of the biggest struggles for any child of God is what is God's will for me? Sometimes it's just, you ask them which direction you want me to go. Well, how do I know what door to walk through? Well, how do I know what, when to move, where to move? And, you know, we come up with cliches. Oh, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Man, that ain't doing nothing for me right now. <laughs> it sounds good. But we've got to learn and thank him that he hears us. Even when we don't think he answers, he heard it and it registered and he saved that request up in a vial that we'll see in the book of Revelation. He stored every request that you made to him. It's filed in heaven. Things that you even forgot that you prayed is there in his throne room. All right. So what is your confidence level in God when you pray? Remember, communication is the key to the relationship. When there's a breakdown of communication, then all kind of crazy stuff starts to happen. You start to slowly distance yourself. Once you were eating at the table together, now, uh, you know, well, we ain't got nothing to talk about now, so I'll just go on and eat over here. He said, there's, there's no anger. Nobody's mad. But there's, there's slow transitioning to separation going on. And we've seen this in our lives with God because of our faulty mechanism that we treat God like man. So Jesus was the one who Moses spoke of when he said that God would raise a prophet like him. Deuteronomy says, God, your God is going to raise up a prophet for you. God will raise him up from among your kinsmen, a prophet like me. Listen obediently to him. Now, you got to pay very close attention because God places offices in the church. He places gifts in the church. But when anybody likens a pastor to Moses, they've missed the whole picture. Moses said that there's going to be a prophet raised up unto me. That prophet was Jesus. It's not the pastorate. Notice the mysterious similarities to Moses and Jesus. Moses shows up out of nowhere, and God buries him. Nobody knows where he went. His beginning and his end are mysterious. Jesus had no earthly father. In the end, we see them gazing up saying, uh-oh, where's he going? 
we, we can't really compare ourselves to Moses or, or the pastorate to Moses. Numbers 11 and 29 says, Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I only wish that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. Now we're talking about the spirit of adoption. What was happening here was that God took the spirit of prophecy that he placed on Moses and he placed it on the 70 elders of Israel. There were two elders that were not there. All of a sudden, all 70 of them begin to prophesy. Now, 68 of them were there with Moses and Joshua. But the other two were outside the camp. They hadn't come to the camp meeting. But they, wherever they were, they were prophesying just like the 70 that were in the camp. So here comes the servant saying, well, these two are way over here doing their own thing. And Moses said, what's the problem? God just told you that he was going to give them the spirit of prophecy like he did unto us. So Moses said, I wish that everybody had the spirit of God, not just these 70, but I wish the entire camp of Israel had the spirit of God. So now we put it in our day where God's pouring the Holy Ghost out like crazy. But we don't want to use it. We want to convert back to, oh, let's go and God ain't going to speak to me. I don't have that kind of relationship with God. Yes, you do. So you're not, you're not treating him like your father. Moses conversed with God as a man talks to his friend. In Exodus 33 and 9, it says, As he entered, the pillar of cloud would come down, stand at the door while the people spoke with Moses. Then all the people worshipped from their tent doors, bowing low to the pillar of cloud. And inside the tent, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And after now, Moses is telling us, I wish that everybody had this. The face to face, friendly, fatherly type of conversation. I want everybody to have it. And afterwards, Moses would return to the camp. But the young man who assisted him, Joshua, he stayed behind in the tabernacle. Moses was at home in God's presence. Numbers 12 and 6 says that the Lord said to them, and now he's talking to Miriam and Aaron. Even with a prophet, I would communicate by visions and dreams. But that is not how I communicate with my servant Moses. He is completely at home in my house. With him, I speak face to face. I'm not dealing with dreams and visions and types and anti-types. I'm telling Moses exactly like it is. Numbers 12 and 6. Now we talk about Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah. But Moses didn't have to filter through anything. He didn't have to find the meaning of a dream. He didn't have to look up Hebrew words to find out what the Lord was saying. The Lord told him verbatim what he wanted to do. With the tabernacle, he told them the exact measurements. But he had to be at home in God's presence. Sometimes we feel like strangers in God's presence. Why, why is God's presence something that happens every so often? Do you just go home on the weekends? 
Oh, you, 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 you just travel around the United States. All right, I'm going to go home Saturday and then I'm going to hit the road again Sunday. I'll be back two Saturdays after that. You come home every day. And when you come home, you relax. You kick your shoes off. You make a bowl of Cheerios. You sit in front of the TV, kick your heels up. You don't sit in the corner and stand all, you know, boy, I feel uncomfortable here. You should be home. When God steps in into your situation, into your worship experience, it shouldn't be something that, that, that we feel uncomfortable with. I sit and watch when God has actually stepped in and folk go, whoa, that ain't how it should be. When he really steps in, that's scary. I'm sitting there going, whoa, don't y'all know? We, we just got home. Said, I don't deal with dreams and, and all that stuff with Moses. But now, remember, now our father wrapped himself in flesh, became Jesus. This is the one that had the experience like Moses. So the next best thing to talking to God face to face like a friend, if you're not there, is to put yourself in Jesus because he's in the presence of God. But that is not how I communicate with my servant Moses. He is completely at home in my house. With him I speak face to face, and he shall see the very form of God. Why then were you not afraid to criticize him? This is why God deals so harshly. If you're really, if you're really in tune with the Holy Ghost, God will deal with you harshly on how you judge people. Because if they're in a relationship with God and, and if they're approaching God and they have communion with God, we should be afraid to scrutinize that. Just like they should be afraid to scrutinize you for what God is dealing with you in. God is helping us with this stuff, this judging thing. For the Lord God Deuteronomy 4 and 31 is merciful. He will not abandon you nor destroy you nor forget the promises he has made to your ancestors. I have about nine scriptures I, that I can that say pretty much the same thing. But he's letting us know. I think I wrote them down to let you know how often God is telling you, I'm not going to leave you and I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not. All these are Old Testament. I'm not going to leave you. And I'm not going to forsake you. Hebrews 4 and 14 says, Now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest, with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing and experienced it all. All but sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy and accept the help. Some of us get in, in, in a pickle and say, oh, I could work my way out of this. I think I know how to, you know, finagle my way and do this and do that and talk to this one and talk to that one. 
But he says, go and get what he's ready to give. James 4 and 8 says, when you draw close to God, God will draw close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and let your hearts be filled with God alone to make them pure and true to him. But it must be him alone. We can't be mixing God with all this other stuff. Take the help and the aids for what they are, the ministries for what they are, the relationships for what they are. But at the end of the day, it should be you and Jesus. And if anything is mixed into that relationship, something's going to be out of whack. So you got to draw close to him. You can't draw close to, to the program. You can't draw close. Uh, see, the children of Israel, they love the program. Man, we got this sacrifice thing down. I could do it in my sleep. I know how to come and, and bring the animals. And the priest lay his hand, slit the throat. I, I, we got this down. What? What are we going to do tomorrow? Are we going to do it again? All right, same place next week, we're going to do it again. See, we know, we know the, the antics, but the spirit of it has evaded us. What this whole thing is about, this is why, last scripture, James 1 and 5 says, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. <laughs> now we, we're talking about approaching him as a father not as this big great judge waiting to pummel you into submission if you want to know what God wants you to do now James here is talking about all of the tests and trials that we go through that's his subject all of the stuff that you go through if you have questions about it what Go to the Sunday school teacher. <laughs> Ask him to write a paper on it. Go to mother so-and-so. Go to evangelist, whatchamacallit. He says, no. Ask God, and he will gladly tell you. For he is always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask him. He will not resent it. But when you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to tell you. Remember, when he was raising Lazarus from the dead, the first thing he said is, Father, I thank you that you hear me. I pray so many prayers where I knew in my spirit I didn't believe that God was listening to me. Because I was treating him like I treated my father. Be sure that you really expect him to tell you, for a doubtful mind will be as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And every decision you then make will be uncertain as you turn first this way, then that. If you don't act with faith, don't expect the Lord to give you a solid answer. So <laughs> I know we don't want to hear this, but we, we usually say God didn't answer. The question is, we really didn't ask. We said some words, but you really didn't ask him in faith from your heart. You didn't approach him like a father. You didn't sit down and, and lay your head in, in daddy's bosom. 
So your answer from God depends on your assurance in God. This word double-minded is from the Greek word dysikos. It means double-souled or double-spirited. So remember the mind, the spirit, and the soul, those words are all interchangeable in the body. But what the, what the job of the spirit is to do is to animate and to influence the natural. So whatever is in your spirit is going to attempt to animate your body your, and your, your actions to do what's in it. The spirit animates and influences. The Holy Ghost is the spirit of God. It's the spirit of influence. It is the spirit that animates God's will in your life. When God is silent, it's because he's listening. It isn't that he doesn't have anything to say. When God is silent in your life, it's because he's listening. He's waiting for you to come to him and say, Abba, Father, Daddy. Sometimes he has the answer, but we don't give him what he needs for the answer to come out. So he's sitting there going, I know he knows something wrong. I'm just wondering when he going to come in. Oh, he just went and talked to Angela about it. Well, oh, he just talked to his wife about it. I guess I died on the cross for nothing, huh? I guess I was tempted in there. I guess I went through what he went through for nothing. God went through your test so he can get an answer for you. But now that you're going through it, you won't even come and talk to him about it. And he went through it just for you. He stepped into your situation on the cross. Could you imagine that? What was that three hours like of darkness? And some believe that the darkness covered the entire earth because from God's throne, what was happening on earth, the, the eyes of God couldn't even look on earth at that moment. So he covered it. So he couldn't really see it. The heavens couldn't even handle the, the horrific hour of Calvary. But at that moment, he was taking on whatever it is you're going through right now that you, add, that you really want to get delivered from. That's what he was putting on in that three-hour period when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. But he did that so you can go from that to Abba, Father. The question is, will you do it? Because in the silence, he's waiting for you to ask him. 